been listening to Punching Out. Hello, you and welcome find to us on Punching Out and on Every Twitter. Every week, we're here Punching on Wayo Radio, talking about the problems people work have with their work, complaints, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces, or Punching Disney page projects, or anything in between. We Our want to hear from you. Ryan Brister. If you'd like to if share your work problems with us, by email us. Punching out Wayo tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hey, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We're recording this on Sunday, August 30th, in the wake of three days, really, of athletes striking in protest of uh, continued police killings of black people in this country. We saw some pretty unprecedented things within the last week. Um, and it's, I guess my first question just to start off the show was like, what was your initial response when you saw on Wednesday that the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, had decided not to play in their playoff game on Wednesday, you know, in protest of what was going on in not just the country, but in their state, uh, Wisconsin obviously is where Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by police officers. And that was something that really seemed to hit close to home for a lot of NBA players for reasons that we'll get into later. Um, I think my initial reaction is pretty easy to summarize. Hell yeah. Like it, it, it was kind of, um, I, I guess there had been, you, you started seeing the leaks, right? That there was a possibility that this would happen, that the Bucks would sit, that they wouldn't play. And uh, it, that started kind of an hour before, if I remember correctly, before the game was actually going. But it still took a lot of people by surprise, even members, even sports writers, members of the media, who presumably would be somewhat in the know about what was going on inside the NBA bubble. And then all of a sudden it was, oh, they're not coming onto the field. They're not playing. And for reasons that I'll get into over the course of the episode, it is pretty incredible to see after everything that we've already seen, especially from the NBA and its players, to see athletes take a stand by refusing to do the thing that they are paid to do. You know, the NBA went as, as far as to let athletes wear uh slogans on their jerseys and that kind of thing but um that was all well within the context of you're still playing you're still doing the thing that people expect you to do that you get paid to do that owners want you to do but this was the first time that they said no we're gonna take a a refusal we're actually going to say we're not gonna do that that i think was what really made it a break with what they've been trying to do in the past uh, yeah, I, my initial reaction to lean into a stereotype a bit was, heck yeah, that's awesome. Who are the Bucks? Uh, <laughs> but that's just because the only sport I follow at all is baseball, and I don't know anything else. Um, but it was just really cool because there tends to be a divide in class um, on these kind of issues, especially when it comes to labor issues like striking or anything like that where um, professional athletes and of their caliber are considered kind of the upper class athletes compared to everybody else. And so not only is there pressure for them not to say anything or do anything, um, the expectation is that they wouldn't want to because they're no longer part of the class that's being oppressed 
more or less. Um, so it was really cool. And I, you know, I was very excited for them, especially once everything started spreading to the MLB. Um, cause that's, that's my sport right there. Um, baseball is, is mine. Um, so yeah, it was really exciting. And I was, I was, I, I, yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> I, I will say for my part, I was caught off guard just because I've gotten used we've we've gotten used in the last few years to seeing things sort of push up towards an edge and then back away before that like sort of escalating step of withholding labor of not playing is taken there have been times in the past where that has seemed like it might happen and it hasn't one thing i wanted to do just off the top of the show is sort of lay the events of the last week or so in um broader context because these don't just come out of nowhere like like i said we have seen situations in recent years that could well have led to a strike but haven't gone that far um just sort of the first one that comes to mind i think you have to go back to 2012 which is uh when trayvon martin was shot and killed in florida uh miami heat after that case became national news uh had a photo a photo on Instagram, I believe, where the players all wore hoodies in solidarity. The idea of uh, Trayvon Martin being killed because wearing a hoodie, being a black teenager, he looks suspicious. And that was the first time I can remember, at least, where athletes spoke out on an issue like this. I, I'm sure it's happened in the past, but it seems like that is the first point in what has become a larger trend over the last decade or so. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, not definitely not the first time, but it was kind of a, a point where people, you know, had tried to dismiss the fact that racism in America was dead. We had a black president that was all, you know, everything solved, everything's fixed. But this child, this baby boy was killed and for doing nothing wrong other than just being black. And I think for a lot of people, that was kind of a wake up call to what was still going on and and things weren't solved and it's only gotten worse since then and in in that vein so obviously Trayvon Martin was the first time uh, you know that this because it's important to note especially for viewers who maybe uh or listeners I guess if you're viewing this we need to talk about your medication, but um, for the listeners who maybe are a little bit younger and don't remember that case, that, that wasn't an official policeman. That was right. a guy who couldn't get a job as a cop self-appointing as judge, jury, and executioner in that moment. Um, and I think obviously that was a, a national touchstone, but then, you know, it continued, it kept happening. And each time you had all of these, um, I can't say any of the words I was about to, um, you know, offer a justification for why it was okay. And then it was almost darkly funny, the level to which the next time that it happened, the next time that a black person was shot or killed or whatever by police or brutalized basically in any way by police, it immediately disproved the previous objection. 
So, you know, it was, oh, uh, because there wasn't video of it. So then there was video of it. Oh, well, it was because they were charging at it. Then somebody gets shot in the back. Oh, it's because uh, police automatically feel threatened when confronted by an adult black man. I don't know why that's supposed to be a point in their favor. But then it was, you know, a child, another child. And it kept going on. And, and this kind of tidal wave of these things kept occurring. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because uh, as Lou said, I think the calculus for a lot of people, or at least the expected calculus, would be that in a league, in a league like the NBA, where uh, there's a lot more uh, black players than there are in, you know, baseball or hockey, mm-hmm. there's a certain. Um, there was an expectation that, oh, but they're they're famous for doing athleticism for doing sports ball so they're not going to join in they you know they have their money and and whatever but the thing is and this is particularly important to note the milwaukee bucks being the team that sat the first team to sit and touch this off isn't just because it was kenosha uh and in wisconsin so it was players on that team having that experience and externalizing it Specifically, um, just a couple months ago, Sterling Brown, who plays for the Bucks, uh, wrote about his experiences being like harassed by police. Um, their coach was coach of the Atlanta Hawks in 2015 when Dabo said a Hawks player, had his leg broken by the New York Police Department. Um, so there is a personal tie there beyond just the obvious geographical tie with the Bucks. Right. And so we as as consumers of sports, right? We watch them and we expect these players to, you know, one, one of the things that we honor really, and we've seen this in the last week, uh, noted, uh, noted white person, Brian Urlacher of the formerly of the Chicago bears decided to say, you know, I, I don't understand why these athletes are striking when other noted white person and creep, Brett Favre, uh, played on the day that his dad died because apparently instead he should have protested his dad becoming a ghost. I don't get that. But we expect these men and we honor them for putting aside, and woman, I should say, the WNBA also refused to play on that day. Um, we expect them to put aside their personality, their, their, their existence when they go to play the game that they get paid to do. And we expect that because we have this skewed view of professionalism that involves, uh, and, and skewed view particularly of entertainers, that involves, you know, you're not you when you go to work. And you're especially not you if you go to work in front of millions of people watching on their television. And these players essentially by refusing said, no, we are people who are affected by this. And the fact that you, the rest of you, have not solved this issue is a problem. And we're going to tell you how much of a problem it is by sitting down um, and, and refusing to play and bringing attention to this issue. And I think it's, it's really important throughout this. And especially if you're somebody who is a big sports fan and who maybe, you know, when, when it was an open question, whether sports would return at all this year, and you were just absolutely pulling for these major leagues to spin up play again, even though we knew that there would be risks, even though we knew that we were placing players' health at risk, like we are placing the risk of every uh, the health of every essential worker at risk. If you're somebody who is really pulling for this stuff to happen, um, I think 
this, the, the fact that these police killings have continued unabated, that the protests have not yet resulted in actual substantive change, that you can't even get one party that is ostensibly the party that hopes to represent the African-American vote in this election, that you can't get anybody to go on record and say, yes, we do need substantive reform. We do need to change these things. These things have to stop, not be minimized, not be you know worn away by little reforms here and there. They have to end. The fact that you can't get anybody to say that to me, is more proof of why we didn't really deserve these men going out there and playing for our entertainment. These people, sorry, once again, going out there and playing for our entertainment. We did not deserve this because we don't have the society that functions around them. There was that uh, quote in sort of the hiatus that sports took uh, by Nationals relief pitcher Sean Doolittle about sports being the reward for a functional society. Um, and that has gotten a lot of play again this past week as our society is not all that functional. I, I have like a lot of events on, on this timeline laid out. Um, a couple years later in 2014, uh, Clippers owner Donald Sterling was, um, there were leaked recordings of him saying uh, racist things. And this happened, this came out like as the Clippers were in the middle of a playoff series and at the time, there, was, there were questions about whether the Clippers would, you know, boycott that game, whether they would refuse to play and would sit out. Um, instead, the gesture they chose was to leave their warm-up shirts uh, in a pile at center court, uh, sort of voicing their approval in that small gesture of a way. Uh, Sterling was eventually forced out of the NBA and banned for life from the league for uh, his comments because no player was going to want to play for him. Later that year, uh, LeBron James and a few other players wore I Can't Breathe t-shirts as uh, there was controversy around the uh, police killing of Eric Garner on Staten Island, um, black man uh, killed via chokehold. And at that same time, I believe, was the killing of Tamir Rice in, in Ohio. And there, were, um, there was some call at the time for LeBron James to sit out games in protest of that case specifically, given it's a uh, proximity to Cleveland and um, uh, Tamir Rice, for those who don't remember, because there have been so many of these cases, it, it's, it is possible to forget. Um, he was a 12 or 13-year-old boy who was shot by police while playing with a BB gun in a park. The next year, uh, Dabo Savalosha had his leg broken by NYPD, as, as I mentioned earlier. Um, this is one I had forgotten. Uh, the University of Missouri's football team, the black players on that team, which amounted to, I think, 60% of the team, threatened to strike until the university's president stepped down after a series of uh, racist incidents on campus. He resigned two days later. So here we have an instance of players utilizing their power to get an outcome they want. Foreshadowing, I guess you could say. Keep on striking. Just do it. It works. It's an effective tactic. And uh, the more it hurts, the more effective it is. End of story. Yeah. Uh, in July of 2016, WNBA players protested in similar fashion to LeBron James a couple of years earlier. They wore uh, T-shirts pregame with the names of Philando uh, Castile and Elton Sterling, both of whom had been killed by police within that week or that month, I believe. Um, this actually resulted in four security officers walking out of a Minnesota Lynx game in protest. 
uh, the league would find players for violating their uniform code, but after further protest, repealed those fines and said, okay, we, we get the picture. You know, they weren't going to be stupid about it. And then in um, August of 2016, four years ago now, uh, Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem for the first time. And that really became sort of a um, cultural touchstone. And in many ways that became a, a, a front in the ongoing culture war for, for lack of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's been the biggest form of protest. And then it, it turned into rather than saying, oh, you know, I'm protesting police brutality. It was, it was disrespecting the flag. It was being rude to servicemen and specifically cops because cops are everything. Um, so, you know, Kaepernick, everybody, every politician currently active and previously active um, owes Colin Kaepernick a huge apology um, because he was very brave to to start a protest that's since ruined his career that has been yeah it's been peaceful and then when other stuff happens and there's violent protests now not started by protesters the violence by the way uh now they're like well you didn't like the kneeling so what what do you want there's just yeah that that is actually a to me personally, that's a really important point coming from, you know, uh, uh, I think people don't get in this country how normal um, we have a, a an idea in this country that the only time political violence of any kind is OK is when you do it to the British uh, and when you do it in support of, you know, like Juan Guaido. That's it. Any other time you do it, it's wrong, especially if the people on the receiving end of it are white and especially if they're cops or troops or whatever other profession we've decided to invent now uh, that fills their role. But the thing is, it just it, you, you're always going to hear this. And, and to me, this really gets at it because, like I said, when it was Trayvon Martin, it was, well, he didn't, you know, there's no video, so you can't verify what happened. So then we saw video, and then it was criticizing the conduct of the people in the video. So then you see uh, a video where clearly the police or self-appointed you know, police is in the wrong, and then it's another criticism. So peaceful protests happen, and those were wrong because you couldn't do that. So now we've got what we've got, and this is wrong. So basically where I'm going with this is that you have a movement of people in this country that literally could not – they don't understand. And I think in many cases, they, they know that they're, they think that they're actually offering some kind of fair critique of what's happening, but because nobody has any historical memory anymore, they don't understand that what they're essentially saying is there is no legitimate protest here. And I do think <laughs> that at the point where you're criticizing athletes for literally doing nothing as a protest, it, we have gotten to a ridiculous level of this. You, for some people, there is no amount of respect that is enough. And I think I have officially broken my record for going uh, without mentioning my, my profession. So I'll say now that 
this is not a norm that I am allowed to enforce. I am not allowed to tell my students constantly, no, you're not allowed to criticize my teaching that way. You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say that. At some point, a principal or a parent or somebody else is going to tell me that I'm in the wrong. And that's really all that's happening here. And yet, for some reason, it's, it's interesting how people just cannot handle the idea that... <laughs> That, that things might not be as rose-colored as they want them to be. And I, I think for a, a lot of the reason that that is happening is because you've got um, a really obvious mm-hmm. uh, entertainment being denied. And that is going to get people's dander up faster than almost anything else. Uh, you, can, you can deny people a lot of things, but you cannot deny them the circuses. We've actually seen that in the past few months. You can deny people the bread. It's the circuses that you can't take away. One, one thing that can be easily forgotten at this point, uh, four years removed, um, is that there were not a lot of people who followed in Colin Kaepernick's uh, footsteps or knee prints, I guess you could say, at the time. <laughs> um, only a few NFL players uh, followed suit by kneeling during the anthem. Nobody from other sports except for uh, Megan Rapino, who plays and played and still plays for the U.S. Uh, national soccer team. She was really a rare exception to the rule of people not taking the stance he did by kneeling for the anthem. And and in fact, U.S. soccer changed its rules about whether you could kneel for the anthem as a result of her protest. Um, it wasn't until September of 2017, a, a year later, Donald Trump is now president. Colin Kaepernick is out of a job. His contract had expired with the San Francisco 49ers, and no team was willing to take him on, a fact for which he sued, alleging collusion, and eventually reached a settlement with the league. President Trump at the time, uh, he had a rally in Alabama where he spoke about players kneeling. And at at that time, only about six players were doing so in the NFL. And he suggested that they should be fired for doing so. And that's what he would do if he were owning one of these teams, which at one point he nearly bought the Buffalo Bills. And resulting from that, uh, more than 200 NFL players took a knee during the anthem that following week, which uh, was a real escalation in the scale of this protest but even at that time given the size of NFL rosters 200 is about 12 or 15 percent of the league so it's it's not something that has widespread universal support Um, and that's kind of where things stood until uh, the pandemic hit and the George Floyd protests hit these past few months because As of last year, only three NFL players were kneeling during the anthem. Uh, It had dwindled into something that was there, but easily ignored if you wanted to ignore it. I I don't think networks are televising the national anthem before every game the way they did in the wake of Kaepernick kneeling. And uh, they, if if you want to see an example of successful containment, Uh, because those are strikingly rare in this country right now. Uh, Bruce Maxwell became the first baseball player. He played, I think, for the athletics at the time. Yes, uh, a catcher, Uh, right? Yep, to kneel for the anthem. And uh, a teammate of his, Mark Hanna, um, put his hand on on Maxwell's shoulder in support. But the team as a whole did not support him. And apparently several players felt the need to tell the media that they didn't support him. 
anonymously, of course, because mm-hmm. they stand behind their opinions. Uh, but they uh, they did that, and for a long time, he was one of I think that one baseball player the, the actually only. yeah the only baseball player putting it out there um until 2020 when the league kind of in in light of everything and the fact that i guess they understood just how much they stood to lose because uh, in the last month or so there have been plenty of articles and and uh pieces and so on basically talking about how baseball has really abandoned uh black players and has really stopped reaching out to um black people in general uh Mm -hmm. to instead take advantage of you know cheap labor imported from latin america um so the league finally sort of allowed a little bit of of solidarity in that and uh, then we saw that over this last week starting with the brewers of course milwaukee's baseball team and progressing through there to really most of the rest of the league at some point or another leading up to jackie robinson day on friday um almost every team was involved in in some form or another of postponement boycott what have you and uh just game refusal and it was actually really hardening to see a sport that it's really in trouble on that level that it's, you know, baseball is, is sad to say kind of a cop sport in a lot of ways. And uh, they began to, they, they might finally be calling back a little bit of that um, because the players have really led that effort. Um, They, they actually agreed, you know, uh, Lou and I know this from, from the Astros game on Friday that didn't get played because the Astros and the A's met and said, we're not going to do this. And in many of the other cases, it's been players leading the way and talking to their teammates and saying, no, we're not. Uh, So that has been in and of itself extremely impressive because it's required in many cases. You know, a lot of these players, a lot of these teams don't have many black players. And in a lot of cases, black players are coming from Latin America where maybe the experiences are somewhat different or what have you. Not that they're Latin American countries are immune to racism, but it's not quite the same thing as the black American experience. And uh, they have, in many cases, these teams have sat down, talked to each other, and these players have been able to convince teams that are probably pretty reticent about taking a political stand like this to actually say something. Mm-hmm. And it's that in and of itself is a very positive development. Well, what you've seen even before this strike uh, with the resumption of sports in the last uh, month or two now since uh, the pandemic hit. Um, Obviously early June was when the George Floyd protests really kicked off in this country. And uh, every brand, it seemed realized that they had to say something and they were obviously, um, I mean, you can judge the sincerity of all those efforts and whether it's really necessary for, say, the Planters Corporation to take a stand on an issue such as this. But there's, and and that included the leagues. The leagues embraced uh, the imagery of protest um, in a way that they did not four years ago when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling alone. Um, The NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League, was the first uh, team sport to return to play in the U.S. Um, They had a bubble in uh, Utah. And at their first game, every player kneeled for the national anthem. And there was some criticism afterwards of the ways in which the league sort of highlighted these images, almost like they were 
using it as marketing as much as anything. And, and there were questions asked about what the purpose of having a national anthem before a game played in front of zero fans is, which I think is a fair question to ask. But even um, not just in the U.S., but in Europe, the English Premier League players kneeled at the start of every game when the season restarted in, I believe it was June. So you have this form of protest has gone not just nationwide, not just been embraced in America, but it's been adopted internationally, which is really something to see. More broadly, talking about the, the forms in which these uh, symbols and statements have taken in the last uh, few months among sports leagues, uh, MLS and MLS Major League Soccer uh, players formed uh, the Black Players Collective, who read out loud a statement about police brutality prior to their first game returning um, in their COVID bubble in Orlando. And the NBA players, there was some talk about whether they wanted to return to play in this bubble because aside from all of the health concerns, there were players who feared that by playing, they would be a distraction from the issues going on in city streets. Eventually, you know, the league uh, convinced them that by returning, they would have a larger platform than if they weren't playing. They would be able to speak on these issues. And that took the form of things like having the words Black Lives Matter written on the court or having small little slogans on the back of their jerseys, which are limited by the size of NBA jerseys. Uh, so you can only get one or two words in there. So they're often vague enough to where they could mean a few different things like vote or equality. But you know, it is a step that leagues would not have been willing to take even last year. Or if you're Gordon Hayward, education reform, which I thought was longer than they than would be allowed on the shirt, but there it is. Was he the only one? I feel like there were a few players that had that. There might be, but he was. Uh, if he had that on his shirt, he was going to be the the most remembered one with it for sure. Right. Um, I think it is it is notable the level to which you mentioned. Uh, the NWSL using it as marketing. And I think this is something that we'll get into later, but it is notable how much each league's audience has been important to this process because, yeah. Uh, Cause I mean, there's that famous picture going around now of the NHL's slogan for this being, we want to be supportive. And it's mm-hmm. a classic example of uh, just low standards. Basically you have an audience where, uh, progressives are not going to make up a majority of the people watching. And ergo, you can get away with doing something like that. You want to be supportive? How about just be supportive? Start there. Like I said, a, pretty much every brand came out in support of these protests. Um, and, you know, every league, you know, obviously put their logo on these protests. They stamped it with their approval. They said, all of this is good. No owners really spoke out to be against it with one exception that being um WNBA owner Kelly Loeffler of insider trading fame she opposed the league's decision to have black lives matter written on the court and players responded by wearing shirts promoting her opponent in her Georgia Senate election this fall which was very funny that's that's pretty good well done and so that is the context in which the Milwaukee Bucks uh decided not to play on Wednesday. Um, you know, it's, it's a culmination, really, of eight years of athletes 
using their platform in ways big and small and ways radical and less radical to speak out on this issue of police brutality, which continues apace even after massive protests. Um, consistently, if you look at the numbers, police kill about a thousand Americans each year, and that number hasn't shrunk since uh, the Black Lives Matter movement began and since body cameras became uh, commonplace. It's and so what, what happens after the Bucks uh, walk off? What, what happens after they decide not to come out of the locker room is you have other teams and leagues deciding how they are going to follow suit. And if they are going to follow suit, um, Noah, you mentioned MLB and how every team eventually got around to having a game postponed. But that first night, only three games, I believe, were postponed when pretty much the entire league was playing. Isn't that right? Notably, the Astros had postponed their game because of a hurricane. So, yeah, there were there were a number of teams that were already postponed for coronavirus or or other reasons. And yes, I do think on that particular night, only three games that were originally scheduled. I think it was a uh, Brewers Reds, uh, Mariners, Padres, and yeah, that's and right. Dodgers. Whoever they were playing, Dodgers Giants. Um, th- there you that- go. The Dodgers protest was led by Mookie Betts, who I believe yep. is that team's, uh, if not their only black player, one of just a few. Yep. And so, obviously, baseball has a more conservative fan base than the NBA. It has a wider fan base. but So they were a little slower to be on the uptake of this movement, but I guess they have to be given credit for getting around to it in some ways. Um, that night... Uh, in Major League Soccer, there were like six games scheduled and one got underway before players and the other five decided that they weren't going to play. So you had this awkward situation of like a game going on amidst other games, you know, like canceling and like players not coming out of the locker room. One of the games that was postponed on Wednesday night was scheduled to take place in front of fans, actually, in Salt Lake City, Utah. A limited capacity of fans, 5,000. Uh, Real Salt Lake is one of a few teams in MLS that uh, have decided, because their states won't prevent them from doing so, that they're going to allow fans to attend games in person. Uh, limited capacity again, but still not a decision I would make. Uh, in the middle of last month, um, FC Dallas had an incident where fans booed their players for kneeling during the national anthem, which uh, Reggie Cannon was one of their players who was outspoken afterwards. Um, And now Real Salt Lake is owned by a man named Delroy Hansen. He also owns the NWSL team in Utah called the Utah Royals. He was none too pleased with the decision by players to postpone this game. And the next morning he went to a radio station he owns to uh, speak his mind on this issue. Um, Quote, it's a moment of sadness. It's like someone stabbed you and then you're trying to figure out a way to pull the knife out and move forward. That's what it feels like. The disrespect was profound to me personally. Well, it's interesting. He talks about disrespect and physical violence and bodily autonomy, um, given what the protests are about. So full marks for irony. 
it it is it is one of the ultimate sort of i am uncomfortable when we not talk about me uh instances we've ever seen because it's i that that little personally that really uh, this expression is overused now but it gives the game away um for so many people this is entirely about um they, their whole thing is thinking if i just say it's my opinion then you can't tell me i'm wrong um and he, really this shows you the extremes to which you can take that especially when you're rich and nobody has dared tell you no in the last like couple decades yeah um he went further than just his comments he had sort of the owner form of a tantrum. He uh, locked the players out from practice that day, refused to let them use facilities, team facilities. Um, He stopped paying royalties for the team's theme song that they play before home games. Uh, And then later that day, after he had gone on to a different radio station that he also owns to apologize for his comments, some reporters uh, discovered that it had long been sort of an open secret in circles around him that he's just kind of a big time racist. No. Um, he had made a joke about lynching a player uh, to that fair space. Thanks. Um, and he had just a couple of years ago referred to a woman as being colored. So that that's the sort of person he is. Um, and I bring this up because I think these moments, uh, whatever gains they might get in terms of like using their leverage to enact change, these moments of taking strikes, taking action in this direct way, have a way of posing the question to people of which side are you on and forcing them to answer. And it's it can be illuminating to see how people answer that question. And the knowledge we gain from those answers you know, can help push things forward, even if there are open questions about what all will come from this movement and this moment. Um, This this first segment has gone on long. It's gone on longer than I anticipated at first, but we'll be back after this break to talk about this from more of a labor perspective, the ways in which these actions are outlawed, actually. They are illegal under labor law in the United States. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We spent the first segment talking about um, the events of the past week in the world of sports, uh, the ways in which athletes in several different sports effectively went on strike in protest of continued police brutality and police violence and police killings of especially black men and black women too in this country. Um, And we want to transition in this second and probably final segment to talking about this from more of a labor perspective, you know, I mentioned just at the end of that segment that what athletes did in the last week is actually against labor law in the United States. Uh, Under the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, 
there, there were certain conditions placed upon unions as to what they could and could not legally strike about. And in return, the labor movement got the ability to demand that their unions be recognized in the first place, which was not guaranteed under labor law to that point. So the Wagner Act was seen as a victory for the labor movement at the time, but it also uh, conscribed the tactics and the methods they would be able to use in the years to come, or at least the methods they would be able to legally use. They haven't always been stopped by the law. So one thing that the Wagner Act explicitly prevents is this idea of a solidarity strike, the idea of striking in support of workers in another business, uh, which is exactly what all of the athletes who were not in the NBA did on Wednesday night and Thursday night and Friday night when they were postponing their games, standing in solidarity with the Milwaukee Bucks who originally started this protest off. And I guess one question is, why are such strikes outlawed? What is the purpose of that? Can, can you think of reasons why that might be the case? Well, absolutely. It has to do with dividing the workforce. Um, if you can't say, if you're saying, well, that's a problem for bakers, but I'm a teacher, then, so I'm not going to strike for them. Like, then it just affects the few people that are interacting with that thing. And, and let's it divides be, the industries. And to be, this is, this is kind of an undersold point. The NBA's current collective bargaining agreement doesn't even allow them to strike. And most collective bargaining agreements are that way. Yeah. Um, it's sort of what owners get in exchange for whatever benefits might be handed out in collective bargaining is a tacit agreement not to strike, which during however long the agreement lasts. Right. So I've said before that the Wagner Act may have been a victory at the time, but that it also enshrined a very specific form of the labor process of the collective bargaining process mm -hmm. that was extremely advantageous to the powerful because it meant that they had all the time in the world to find every possible loophole. And this is one of them. The fact that you're allowed to essentially say, you're not allowed to do this labor process, uh, no matter how badly I go back on my word, is pretty incredible because it's employers who do that. It's employers who lie and exploit their workers. The fact that you're allowed to do that and still say, but you're not allowed to take corrective action, or rather, if you take corrective action, the consequences will fall on you and not me, should tell you something about how even when the working class can win in this country, it's done by making them take two steps back in some other way, shape, or form. Well, I want to note that the law didn't stop workers from going on these what are called wildcat mm -hmm. strikes, when a strike starts with the workers instead of union leadership. Wildcat strikes like marked the entire decade that would follow the, the Wagner Act as the U.S. went into mobilizing for World War II, there, were, there was sort of a national no-strike clause in place by the AFL-TIO that workers just ignored at plants across the country, especially in the Rust Belt, obviously, where manufacturing is centered. Workers went on wild wildcat strikes hundreds of times a year. They effectively flouted not just their bosses, but union leadership by demanding better conditions during this. Right. But in this case, you'll notice uh, the both sides, the, the NBA owners and the NBA players were very careful not to call it a strike. They called it a boycott. 
because then yeah. it allowed them to save face because to be fair, the NBA has negotiations coming up and everyone kind of wanted to avoid, avoid the appearance that this would be an offshoot of that and, and start that kind of thing early. But it is notable that you know they they wouldn't they wouldn't even use that word in an effort to try and and allow everybody to pretend that this was you know not the labor action that it actually was, and um, you know it it well, might be a rhetorical or symbolic point, but I think it's still important to note that it's there. And one of the things the Wagner Act requires is for. Uh, unions in cases where these no strike clauses are in place for union leadership to actually quash worker efforts to strike like this. And I don't think it's coincidental that um, a lot of the sort of radicalism of the moment seemed to go out the window when uh, union leadership came in and when the players had that meeting on Wednesday night, the NBA players to sort of discuss where they go from here. Um, at that point, the Milwaukee Bucks had already like called the Attorney General of Wisconsin from their locker room. They had already called for uh, the state legislature in Wisconsin to resume session. They, they have been working there for a month or so uh, to adopt new legislation on police brutality, police violence. And from the reporting, at least, you know, and there's only so much that can be known about what went on behind closed doors. It was union leadership sort of encouraging players to get back on the court to resume normal business after this first day of what everybody wants to call a boycott, but withholding labor is a strike. Semantics, but again, important. Right. Thank you, Noah, for pointing that out. And then, um, and then, of course, we received the news that the players eventually brought in somebody who is known to be a basketball fan and who is, has the certainly has the cachet and the reputation of being a charismatic negotiator. They called former President Barack Obama uh, mm-hmm. in to sort of advise them as to what to do, and he appears to have told them to get back on the court but have a plan of action. And what this seems to have led to is NBA arenas across the nation uh, saying that they would be open as voting centers for people to drop off ballots and so on, which I'm not knocking in. in um, it's, it's not nothing. Yeah, but it's certainly a lot less than initial demands. And it is certainly pushing those demands through a very narrow lens that once again is the most easily exploitable by people who enjoy the majority of the information, the majority of the power and who have all of the lawyers and other assorted people that you need to do to tie this process up and to reduce the initial radicalism of what the bucks were trying to do, because what they were doing was, you know, direct action. They were actually going out of their way to do something that athletes in general don't do. Uh, or, or at least are not doing as, as sort of their main outreach. I, and I think that is important in and of itself because, and, and this is a point I've, I've wanted to say on the Strike Zone episodes before, but in American culture, to the extent that that really exists, protests like these by professional athletes tell you that we still see athletes as people who because their labor is something that is primarily physical it is a feat of the body we don't uh you know it's not that, that which is not true let let me start with that you know there is plenty of other stuff involved in professional sports 
there is plenty of stuff that requires a good head on your shoulders that's not just instinctive or, or physical. But because we consider their labor to be derived from their bodies, there is always something that's very surprising about seeing them take a political stand explicitly in a way that I think it doesn't surprise most people when it's uh, you know, a filmmaker or a musician or a writer or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a stupid divide, but it exists. And then the thing about it, though, is that there is a source that is also, if, if done correctly, that universality, because that brings people of different political beliefs and different geographical locations and uh, across class divides and what have you together as an audience, that universality is an exploitable source of power. And I think that's why it's always been very sad when we, as Ryan, as you were saying, when we get up to the precipice of maybe athletes using their power to take a stand, and then they don't in many cases because they listen to people who tell them not to. And it's it's always very sad when you see that because the thing is they have a reach that almost nobody else does, that nobody else does. I'll actually go out there and say it. I think they have the ability to affect change in this country in a way that almost no one else can. And, and uh, whenever they're prevented from doing so by somebody giving them, you know, very, uh, quote unquote, 72 point air quote, sage advice, it's, it's pretty sad to see that backwalk. I, I think there's an extent to which um, people view sports as separate from what goes on in the rest of society in a way that maybe they don't view music or movies in the same way because movies and music tend to in some way explicitly reflect you know day-to-day life or at least the lives of uh, celebrities and very wealthy and so there is sort of that um belief that somehow they aren't nearly as knowledgeable on these subjects as perhaps a filmmaker or even a musician or an actor might be but i mean when it comes to this issue of police brutality of racism again the milwaukee bucks have firsthand experience experience in that subject. It's it's something that hits very close to home. They are not removed from that because they are they happen to be, you know, quite rich and quite well paid for their labor. And I think one of the things that really might be a bright spot from all of this is the way in which it it shows that athletes one know that they are they have power. They have power to really put a stop to all of the money-making machine that surrounds them if they simply refuse to play. They, they have leverage in that way, in a way that a lot of workers don't necessarily have. Now, in other ways, their leverage is limited because, you know, they can only really put pressure on the people who own uh, sports franchises and maybe like television networks. Whereas, say, if you are... Um, an Amazon delivery driver or an Amazon warehouse worker, you have a greater um, logistical power in theory. If you shut that operation down, it impacts so many more areas of society. So I guess if there's something to be learned here, it's the ways in which, um, once again, the theme I'm pushing out is going to be that workers have power if only they choose to use it if they are willing Mm -hmm. to work together to use it um and that's good they should do that um and hopefully if nothing else comes from this um obviously the demands of players and whether they will be met is still up for grabs hopefully it will lead to something 
more that extends beyond just the world of sports. Yeah, here's open. Here's hoping. I mean, if if you watch basically any uh, any movie that's a biopic about a great athlete, right? The point that they always make is that well, kids out there will pretend to be you, and I kind of hope that this is another way in which if you're you know a, a teenager that is uh, is is happily seeing sports happen again for you, if you're a kid who's growing up in this era, I hope that's another way in which they choose to be like their sports heroes, you know to realize when they go into the workforce that they have power, that they can grind the machinery to a halt, that they should have uh, the self-respect and self-regard, really, the, the, the ego, ultimately, to realize that they are, it is on their backs that all of this is done. Mm-hmm. There were a couple sort of, um, I guess, ignorant would be the right way to put it, uh, responses to this that I came across. Uh, one being the idea that, of uh, like people on Twitter saying, oh, well, I guess I can just say I'm not going to work now too. And the answer is yes, form a union. Uh, and two, um, I like overheard this in, in person, uh, people talking about the idea of, no, they're only going to hurt their own sport, right? Um, and I think that's the point. They are willing to have something at stake, have something at risk by taking this stand and to, you know, really force people to reckon with the possible loss of money because there are things more important than that money in the moment, you know, if they wield their power correctly, right? Look, look at these silly idiots being courageous and brave. Right. In any other circumstance, if they didn't put their money on the line, they would be derided as out of touch or, you know, what have you. But the moment they do, it's something else entirely, which tells you that the criticism isn't really about the tactic. It's about the uh, what's at stake. Message behind it. Precisely. And we should, once again, here in Punching Out, say that we agree with that message. We should. Um, mm-hmm. This country here. has endured police killing of uh, African-Americans for far too long. It's far too frequent. It continues you know, to this day. It will continue tomorrow to be sure um, until something is done about it in terms of really uh, removing that power from police, the power of life and death, removing that from their hands so that we don't have to deal with these images, these videos every week for the rest of our lives. Absolutely. On that note, um, I think we're running up against the clock here. So for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. And I'm Lou. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.